Hi. Well, it's the end of the quarter, which means we're dealing with the 1990s today, the end of the 20th century. Let's not go over the maths on what day the 20th century actually ended. I'm going to let you decide what day that is. Um, but we can agree that 1999 is probably the last year we need to deal with. And the single biggest concern for humanity in 1999 was whether the entire computer network that had developed over the last 20 years would be able to survive the change in dates at midnight on December 31st, 1999. Now, it might seem silly to you, but the switchover from the year 1999 to 2000 was a, a major weak point in the computer programs across the world. And it's really not until January 1st, 2000, that we were sure that we you know, woke up and everything was still fine. And we realized that, you know, the world did not come to an end. Now, the Y2K fuss, and Y2K means Y as in year, and 2K, 2000, actually began in 1998. And that's when the bug at the center of this Y2K problem was uh, articulated. It turns out that many system programmers, when they sort of developed the programs, had set aside only two digits to to denote the year and dates. So, for example, June 15th, 1998 had enough space to be denoted as 06-15-98, but it couldn't be denoted as 06-15-1998. Now, that you know, up until then wasn't a problem. But when the computer's clock would strike midnight and switch over to the next millennium, the math was going to get messed up because the date, because essentially we would move from 1999 or from 99 to, well, not 2000. We'd move to zero, zero. So date-based equations, for example, like, you know, the year 98 minus the year 97, that would normally lead to one, which is the correct answer, would now well, they'd be a bit messy, right? Because, for example, if you were going to do a date-based equation using the year 2000 minus the year 99, you wouldn't get 2000 minus 1999 equals 1. You'd get 00 minus 99 equals minus 99. And that minus 99 is something that the computer was not going to be able to sort of comprehend in the context of a a date-based equation. There is no year minus 1999 or minus 99. And that would prompt some computers to do the wrong thing and other computers just not to do anything at all. So that kind of um, halt and catch fire problem, um, that freaked people out. So most tech forecasters actually said that, you know, the necessary programs had been fixed in time and that really there wasn't going to be this end of the world scenario. But the fear of a fallout was still scary enough for the Time magazine to put this hysteria on its cover in January 1999 under the headline, I'm not kidding. The end of the world. So Y2K problem lawsuits began to be filed in that last year of um, of, 19, of, the, of the 20th century. Um, wilderness survival boot camps got really popular. Um, NBC even made a made-for-TV movie about the coming disaster. Right, yeah. So, I mean, you've probably never seen it because it wasn't that great. But but people were worried. And, and, and you know, the media, the press... Um, responded to that by, by, in a sense, you know, sometimes educating them and sometimes just benefiting from the hysteria. But beyond that, you know, before we got to the Y2K madness, the 90s were actually a pretty good decade, well, at least for some of us. But generally also, you know, I mean, I'm, let's just say, I'm, I'm probably biased by the fact that I was young, I was in college in the 90s. So my memory of the 90s are, um, well, I was your age. So I, I'll have a, I had a sort of a different perspective. But they were good years in general. 
but they were also empirically, objectively, relatively good years. So let's let's begin with some quantifiable information. The United States at large was prospering in the 90s. The U.S. economy grew. Um, I mean, it it grew by an average of four percent per year between 92 and 99. That's um, yeah, that's like that hasn't happened since. There were about 1.7 million jobs that were added a year to the American workforce. Um, unemployment rate dropped from 8% to like 4%, which is essentially zero, um, which is kind of close to where we are right now, by the way. And so, you know, by the end of the decade, there was so much good news um, that each new achievement didn't quite register as miraculous. I mean, let's think about it. The decade had begun with a fantastically joyful and previously unimaginable development, right? The Soviet empire collapsed. Global nuclear Armageddon had ceased to be a thing that we worried about. And the nations of Eastern Europe were mostly unchained, untethered from the communist empire. Latin America had also become increasingly democratic. Now, not without some setbacks, right? There were at least two major economic crises, guerrilla and rebel uprisings, and a worrying rise in drug trafficking and drug politics. But overall, what all this happened in a context in which civil society was getting much stronger, right? The military was largely not involved in politics anymore. And participatory democracy was an actual thing, not an aspiration in Latin America. And so whatever conflicts there were remained largely local, right? They did not devolve into large-scale regional warfare. And so a tide of progress and good sense seemed to be really sweeping the whole world. And according to an annual count by Freedom House, which tallies the world's free countries, um, that number climbed from 65 at the beginning of the decade to 85 at the end. So, you know, since then, there have only been three countries that, or four countries that have been added to that list. So that's a, like 20 new countries over 10 years that were sort of considered free by, uh, by Freedom House. Seems to be a, a pretty good calculation. And among these, among these calculations was South Africa. Between 1990 and 1994, South Africa dismantled apartheid completely and peacefully. I'll go over that in a second. Elsewhere, with the Oslo Accords, Israel and and the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, had finally come together to negotiate a framework for existence and eventual peace. Right, so let's not move forward into the 21st century, but in the 90s, this seemed like like it could lead to really positive outcomes. The civil wars in the former Yugoslavia finally ended, and an enduring peace was actually restored. And China normalized. It became a more open society. It reformed its economy and it tripled the gross domestic product and and really eased its way into a fully participatory country with the rest of the world order. During the 90s, the only American-led war in the Middle East was the one that drove Saddam Hussein's invading army out of Kuwait. And that ground campaign lasted how long? 100 hours. That's it, right? That's like, what, five days? The digital age, of course, got fully underway in the 1990s. At the beginning of the decade, almost none of us had heard of the web. Well, most of you weren't alive, but, you know, I didn't start emailing until later. And we didn't have browsers. Uh, There were no search engines. There were no digital cell phone networks or 3D games or, you know, affordable and powerful laptops. By the end of the decade, we had all of that. And it was just the right amount of technology. By the end of the decade, many people had cell phones, but we didn't have smartphones. We were not overconnected, and we certainly weren't 
tyrannized by our devices. Social media had not yet transformed our social connections. So the digital revolution was there. It was transformative, but it hadn't quite disrupted the economy, the economic sector. And I'm saying disrupted in, in, in air quotes here. But it, it didn't sort of change fundamentally how workforces operate in the current economy. Recorded music sales nearly doubled during the decade. I don't know who records music anymore today, largely. Um, newspapers and magazines were thriving, which is not exactly the case today. And even Y2K, right, that terrifying end of the millennium technological event was, as I mentioned above, largely a non-event. Right? And so back to South Africa, a, a, a huge bright side in world politics at the end of the 21st century was that South Africa moved away from the repressive apartheid system towards true democracy, representative, diverse democracy. And it did that without provoking a bloodbath. Now, South Africa, there was a context to this, right? It didn't just happen in a vacuum. South Africa had been confronted with an international boycott since the 1980s and internal strikes from opponents, sort of there were internal opponents to the apartheid system. And in 1989, a new prime minister, F.W. de Klerk, was elected. And he was determined to find a peaceful way to transition his country because he, he realized this was, you know, the South Africa could not continue to be sort of marginal, uh, this lonely island that nobody wanted to deal with, nobody wanted to trade with. So first, what he did was he removed the ban on the African National Congress, which was essentially the kind of the, the political um, organization of black Africans in South Africa. And he released political prisoners, among them Nelson Mandela, who had been in prison since 1964. So he, this was a, he, he's you know, a hero. He's up there with Gandhi um, and, and in terms of, sort of defenders of human rights and certainly of, of self-representation. And the world watched as this champion of equality finally walked free. So many people had remembered him being imprisoned and now could see him walk free. It wasn't easy because just as moving from communism to capitalism, which so many Eastern European countries had to do, uh, switching from institutional racism to a free and equal society, that, that, that could lead to some conflicts. But in April 1994, South Africa had its first democratic election and everyone had a right to vote and everyone had a right to be a candidate. And Nelson Mandela, a black man, the first black man, was elected president of South Africa. I mean, this, I cannot under, I mean, I cannot tell you how sort of earth shattering and fantastic that was. He knew, however, that the task ahead was an ominous one because in while this seemed to be an, an amazing reversal of, of sort of power dynamics in the country, you know, he now had to, he, he was the president of everyone. He wasn't just the president of black South Africans. He was the president, he had been elected by black South Africans and white South Africans. So his task now was, you know, he needed to lead his country, build harmony, and find a way to forgive a century of apartheid. So this is where another really inspiring South African man comes in. This is the Archbishop of Cape Town, the South African capital, Desmond Tutu. He came in with a plan. Actually, Cape Town is not the capital of South Africa. It's Pretoria. Take that back. So, but Desmond Tutu was an inspiring man. So he, um, he came up with this notion of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Because, you know, he realized that if, if they prosecuted anyone and everyone who had ever committed an act of brutality in South Africa, they would have filled the prisons, like, in a day. And they would have left many people feeling resentful of the change. 
And so the idea was that what they needed to do was bring accused and accusers together, right? And what they needed to teach South Africans to do was to talk to each other, not to heighten the differences. And so what they were, what, what these truth and reconciliation commissions did was that they would, they would bring, you know, sort of both sides of a conflict together in an open courtroom and allow everyone to speak openly. If the accused recognized the harm he or she had done and showed remorse, they were given amnesty. And if they didn't, then they were prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And believe it or not, it worked. It wasn't easy for former policemen to admit to the crimes that they had done, despite the fact that those crimes perhaps had been, in a sense, kind of not criminal at the time. But they were remorseful. And these truth and reconciliation commissions that took years were essentially kind of a a large-scale national therapy session, and it brought the nation together. It's a it's it's a and it's an inspiring event, and I, I encourage you to read up more about this. And this is a good uh, as time as any to point you to the only reading I assigned this week. It's a section from a chapter in Trevor Noah's biography. The book is called Born a Crime. Trevor Noah, if you're not aware of who he is, is a South African comedian, and he also hosts the Daily Show on Comedy Central. So he's a comedian. He's also a great writer. He's a pretty social, sort of very sort of astute social critic. And the section of the book that I've assigned is a really trenchant piece on sort of the relativity of history, depending on your identity and how identity really kind of affects how we see and know and understand history. The piece I've assigned is called Go Hitler. Yep, Go Hitler. And you have to read it because, you know, it'll explain the title. And one of the main points Trevor Noah makes is that if you were black South African who was educated in an educational system that for a long time did not consider you of equal worth than a white South African. And you really didn't know much about European history or world history. And essentially, you know, that meant that Hitler meant something very different to you. And if you asked a black South African who the most evil man in history was, well, Hitler probably wouldn't be the word, the name they'd come up with. And so it, read the piece. It's it's 14 short pages, and it'll really help you see why history is such a personal matter and why so many of the world's issues we confront today are so intimately tied to personal histories. I mean, any conflict or innovation or person we've studied this quarter, they're all product of stories that mean different things when seen by different people. Because history isn't neutral. There's no one truth in history. That's why the Arab-Israeli conflict will be so difficult to resolve. But yes, of course, you know, why can't we all get along? Well, you know, if a Palestinian child grows up seeing the Israeli army as an occupying force, when he grows up, he won't necessarily be able to sympathize with the post-World War II justifications for the creation of the state of Israel. And a child who lost his parents at the hands of the Chilean military regime in 1970s, when the Cold War made the U.S. support right-wing military regimes all in order to protect itself from communism. Well, that child, when she grows up, might really have a hard time believing that the U.S. acts benevolently in foreign affairs. Right? And even if a child did not experience any of this personally, the story we hear when we grow up, the family histories that are told around us, that all become part of who we are. And that becomes part of how we view the world and we interpret the view the world. That becomes part of our bias. The aging population of concentration camp survivors today know intimately what the consequence of caps on refugee numbers can be. And they see the horror of a population registry by religion. But because that's what Hitler did in Germany, right? 
But if you're a French factory worker who's been unemployed for three years, who's being told that his unemployment check is probably going to be smaller, and then that French unemployed factory worker sees new immigrants moving in from the Middle East, well, he's going to have a very different attitude, right? He's going to advocate for refugee caps because his history is different. He did not grow up the same way. He did not experience what a concentration camp survivor experienced, right? It doesn't mean that he's right, that any one of us is right, but it helps us understand what their political response might be, right? History, again, it's personal and politics are personal. And when you try to understand how events unfold and why people act the way they do, well, your only path is to try to understand what made them who they are. And then many decisions become much easier to understand, if not accept, but the path towards reconciliation hopefully is possible. In other words, I really, you know, read more history and please read the Trevor Noah chapter. We're coming to the end of the quarter and of this podcast. So um, I want to leave you with one last thing. I, um, I looked up the meaning of the name Hedda. You know what it means? It means refuge in war. It also means vigorous battle maiden, which I think is so appropriate. So in the battles that lie ahead for all of us, and be they great or be they minor, whatever obstacles you're going to face, I'd like you to think of Hedda, and I'd want to tell you that you will overcome these obstacles. You have to stay strong in the face of adversity, you have to learn from your mistakes, and you just have to keep moving forward. And occasionally, you have to stop. You have to enjoy a pretzel stick, you know, feel the sand between your toes, or make deviled eggs for a party. And remember, and I'm going to paraphrase that vigorous battle maiden Hedda, whether you go to the party or not, have a great time. Thanks for everything, guys. Have a wonderful break. It's Professor Levy signing off for the last time. <laughs>